You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about innovation, play and failing, an interview with Mike Smith. <music> I really enjoyed this interview with Mike. There's lots of lots of good stuff in it. And if you have been to the PSI conference this year, the virtual one, then you probably heard about his presentation there as he was a winner of the Joint PSI and RSS Award last year. And so today we are talking a little bit about this webinar and we actually recorded it pretty much directly after he has presented this webinar. So, as we are talking about PSI, this is really timely because PSI is helping me with this podcast. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI. And PSI is a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. There's lots of lots of great things with PSI, with what you can develop further your statistical capabilities. For example, there's a video on demand content library. There's a lot of webinars that are going on and you will get free access to all of these. And there's much, much more. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities. And don't forget to become a PSI member. Best today. Welcome to a new podcast episode of The Effective Statistician, and today I'm here with an award winner, Mike Smith. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thanks, Alexander. Very good. We are recording this actually directly after the PSI conference of 2020. This time was a little bit different than the usual PSI conferences, as it was completely virtual due to the overall corona situation. Mike, you just gave a presentation there. How was that? Very good. Very different as well. I've done a couple of webinars, but um, doing it at scale where, you know, you, you don't know how many people are on the on the line. And actually, I found the hardest bit was not getting any feedback. Normally when I'm presenting, I like to see people's faces and, and get that feedback and see whether it's working and, and kind of tailor what I'm saying to how I see people reacting. But so that was about the hardest part is not getting any feedback on how people are receiving it. But I got some nice feedback via Twitter later. Ah, oh, that's, that's awesome. Okay. And you talked about a really, really important uh, word for uh, us as statisticians. It's probably an important word for us as an industry uh, or as a society, and that's innovation. And mm -hmm. when when you speak about innovation, especially for us statisticians, what are you thinking about? Yeah, um, so this is something I touched on in the talk. So it's hard, I think, to come up with constructive definitions of innovation. Um, you know, what uh, being inclusive about what innovation is. So actually, I defined it by going the opposite way and saying what innovation is not. So I said that in, I see innovation as anything that can't be defined by business as usual or tried and tested. Mm. You know, if, if you're working in that uh, sphere where you're just going to go and go back over something that you've already done and that's what people expect 
or you're doing something that's, you know, this is a, the same way that we've done this time and time again, that's not innovation. Yeah. Right? But being, being, defining it that way means that it includes things like just application of existing methods. Yeah. Lots of people think of innovation as being, you know, it has to be blue sky thinking. It has to be completely novel, new theory, new everything. And actually, I think it's, you know, a lot of the stuff I've done is just applying some something that uh, someone else has discovered. Yeah, I think that is very often also what I see as being innovative. Innovative means that you bring something new to the organization. It doesn't need to be new to science or society overall, uh, but very often kind of innovation is if you take an approach that is already out there and then apply it to your data. So, so for example, I was once working on some visualization of data and I got inspired by this really nice Hans Rosling type of approaches mm -hmm. and, and then applied that to uh, clinical data. Yeah. So it's not something that then is, it's not new in the sense that nobody has ever done that before. It's just that you kind of combine things. I think that is a really uh, nice way to think about innovation as well. Yeah, and it also means that in order to do it well, I think you need to be, you know, have your eyes open, be looking out for what you think is, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I could do that. Mm -hmm. um, and and that kind of I wonder if comes on to one of the other points in the talk, which was about you know being curious and asking what if, what if I was to apply Hans Rosling's approach to a clinical trial result. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the other point is. Um, we very often just think in terms of, you know, statistical approaches, mm. like, like the visualization or a new Bayesian technique that was just published or, or a different design approach or things like that. But I think there's lots of other areas we can think about in terms of innovation as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was involved in at, at Pfizer was um, looking at different ways of speeding up the reporting process, mm. so reproducible reporting. You know, can we uh, incorporate some of those ideas of embedding the analytics inside the report so that, you know, things like QC would become easier, it could become faster to update a report when data changes, um, things like that. You know, so, yeah, it, it's not just the statistical methodology or, or you know, data science methodology. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. So it's, I think it's, it's something new to, to the organization and that helps to create new value. And I think that's, that's, I think that's an important part that needs to be in there for, for innovation because it's not just kind of ivory tower research that, that comes. Yeah. So, so if you have a new approach, but that doesn't add value, then yeah. Well, that's not innovation for me. Right. And, you know, I also talk about the drivers for innovation. And, and typically that comes out of some constraint, right? So either you need to do things faster, you need to do it you know, more cheaply with less resource, mm -hmm. or, you know, there is some constraint on this system that you need to somehow get around. And that forces innovation. Yeah. You know, if you're sitting there and everything is perfect, well, do you need to innovate? It might be interesting, but it's not necessary. So, you know, I, I think you're right that it's looking at, you know, 
looking at what's happening today and saying, how could this be better, faster, more efficient? And to be honest, I think that's that's you know sits right in the wheelhouse of most statisticians. Yeah, yeah, and I I completely agree in terms of constraints. They are really important to to drive innovation. Um, I was once hearing about a story of Jeff Bezos that that kind of you know had lots of different ideas to to start a project. And his constraint was that he needed to be able to do it as a as a side job. So mm -hmm. it needed to be something that he can develop kind of in the evening and would still kind of drive forward. And that deleted a lot of kind of options and and that way he came up with uh, with Amazon. Yeah. So right. yeah. it's um you can be so so constraints can in that sense be really, really positive. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my, my current boss talks about trying to boil the ocean. You know, you, you can't boil the ocean. You've got to take it, you know, one cup at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, from that perspective, as you're saying, you know, you have constraints as well. Yeah. You, know, you, you can't try to innovate a whole process at once because that's just too difficult. It's too painful. Yeah. So pick out the small bit that you can achieve deliver on that and then move on to the next thing. But I think the other thing I realized is that as you're doing that, as you're making that incremental innovation to fix one problem, you need to also have an eye on what the big solution is. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that you're not just doing something here today that in one month or, or six months, you'll have to roll back because actually the bigger thing now means that that thing you did earlier doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is really important to have kind of the, the big picture uh, yeah. in mind. What are the different other initiatives that are going on? Yeah, so that you don't run something that is in parallel with the bigger initiative. So, so you kind of make make things redundant or inconsistent or things like that. And so, um, have, therefore, I think it's really important to have a wider network and bigger business understanding of what's going on. Right. <clears throat> the other thing I was talking about was play. Right. And the I I firmly believe that playing with things will deliver results. Yeah. You know, and, and so there's a danger when you're looking at the big picture and, and thinking forward and thinking to that six month horizon or the, the two year horizon, you know, it's hard to start. Right. Whereas sometimes if you just pick a pick out The, the small element and play with it and find something that works. Maybe you do need to unpick that in, in you know, a, a month or six months, but you know, you've got something. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is a, that's a really good kind of trade off you need to look into. Yeah. yeah so, so I also believe this play approach helps you to also discard things faster. Oh, sure. With, um, If you want to innovate and be innovative, you also need to accept that you will fail. Yeah. So, so oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I can think of, you know, one time we were thinking about doing um, stats trainings in-house, more kind of videotape-like and, and things like that. We tried to record ourselves on video, how we explain certain things. And it was a disaster. <laughs> it was just, you know, just kind of the overall equipment that was what would be needed. 
us not really being professional actors and, and kind of professional in, in front of the screen. There were so many elements that just didn't work together that we thought, okay, that's maybe not the right way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you can, in, in doing that, there must have been some learning that came out, right? So you can say, well, this way doesn't work, yeah. you know, but, but what would we change to make it work next time? Yeah. You know, and so I think there's a kind of continuous learning, continuous improvement bit to this, which says I play with something, I get something, it's not quite right. You know, is it good enough? And if the answer is no, it's really not good enough, then you need to say, well, you know, for the next time, if I've got the same thing that I'm trying to achieve, then what do I change? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of training do I need? What, you know, can I make it so, so that it works better? So maybe just talking to slides, for example, in, in our example, and then, you know, just have a, you know, the, the headshot somewhere. These kind of uh, ideas came then up. So that's, it's exactly right. You need to kind of continue to fail to, to get to the next, next step. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is, is about the time. You know, because the time that you take to, you know, perhaps in your example, the the training was going to happen anyway. And so you're just recording what's happening anyway. Mm-hmm. But then you have time that you need to have to review that and look at it. And if it's right, that's great. So, you know, you can reuse what you have. But if it's not right, then you need to come back and try again. So you need a lead time there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so so innovation can't happen overnight. You know, you if someone phones you on a Friday night and says, I need something really, you know, a really great design for Monday morning's meeting. That's not the time to do that. You know? <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, I think the other thing what I what I have observed is sometimes it just needs a lot of time to grow in in, in the background. I had lots of ideas about visualizations uh, over years and how to best kind of display how uh, changes from baseline for, for bigger populations, how that worked out. And um, then I came across a project where that really helped quite a lot. And that's where then kind of all the different stars aligned. So the, you know, the project team was happy about it. There was the right resources. That was the right timing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was just working on the right project and then it kind of boom and it went, went forward like crazy. Yeah. But, but years before it kind of got stuck and there was a little bit more of movement, a little bit of movement. And it got stuck again and it kind of was waiting in the background until kind of the perfect situation came up. Right, right. And again, I talked about this because there's a there's an element of the context that you do your innovation in. And from from what you're saying, earlier context was nah, we're not quite ready for this. Right. And And so I was trying to say that the culture that you're doing your innovation in and culture here meaning lots of things. Right. It means receptiveness. Mm. Um, and the timing with respect to the project and whether they're ready for it and whether your line management are ready to stand behind you and say, this is, this actually is a good idea. Let's, let's carry it forward. So the culture has to be ready for your innovation. And if it's not, right, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad idea. It's just that, you know, you need to somehow wait until someone's more receptive to that. Mm. And, 
the, the, the point I was trying to make is that you shouldn't park, you shouldn't just abandon that and say, well, it wasn't a good idea. Let's throw it away. Mm-hmm. But rather park it, document it and say, well, I had this idea. I tried it and it didn't fly on this occasion, but here's where it's sitting and it's ready. And here's the assumptions I'm making and here's what you need to do so that the next time when we are in a position for it to really make a big impact, I can quickly deploy it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of, do you know the, uh, this speech by Steve Jobs where he talks about connecting the dots? Where, where he kind of, it's a, it's a commencement speak. I, I think. I don't think I know that one. Stanford or something. Um, and he, he talks about kind of his, um, his experience where he worked on calligraphy and he worked on all kind of different things. And then when the Mac got, uh, developed, there all these kind of different things came together. So it was, you know, the first computer uh, that had really nice for and these kind of things, whereas mm. all the other computers before had kind of just this one standard form. And then so so that is kind of another idea where all these different things need to come up together. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, it in some respects, uh you have to be lucky for your innovative idea to work. You know, and for all of these things to align. Right. But again, I think if you're practiced at innovation, if you have a good sense, uh, I talk at the end of the slide, at the end of the uh, presentation about marketing, Mm -hmm. right? And marketing to me is about building trust in the team that you're working in, you know, Mm -hmm. so that they trust your ideas. They trust that you deliver on your ideas. You're also a good steward of other people's ideas that, you know, you basically it's, it's making that culture right for running the idea out. Okay. Yeah. Now, in that instance, uh, if you're good at doing those kinds of things, then it, yes, you need luck to make your idea fly, but you, you're, you can engineer that luck. Yeah. Yeah. By building the relationships by, by, you know, so that people can be candid with you and say, Mike, I can see that's a good idea, you know, it, but we're not ready for it now. Yeah. You know, and they'll be honest with you so that the next time they'll, they might go, actually, now is the time that we need to apply that great thing that you thought of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yes, you know, the, there's definitely luck in there, but I, I honestly think that you can engineer a lot of that luckiness, you know, by being perceptive, by seeing that, you know, timing's not quite right for this. So I'll hold back or talking to the right people at the right time to say, Hey, you have a problem here. I have something sitting in my filing system that can solve that problem for you. Would you like to try it? Yeah. I, but I think that is also goes into the marketing aspect that we just talked about. You don't say I have this uh, solution and then kind of, you know, convince the, the other side that you need to apply the solution. But what you said was, I think, very valuable in terms of um, getting it sold you said you have this problem, yeah, and you come from the problem, and then you you can explain to the other stakeholders you have this problems in terms of time, in terms of quality, in terms of budget, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I have thought about this, and here's a solution that would you know come to help solve this problem. Yeah, it's definitely you know what makes this work is problem driven solutions. 
yeah. rather than solution driven something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I I work a lot in in using R and stuff, and I hear lots of people say we need to use Shiny. But Shiny is the technology; it's the solution. Yeah. You know, I'd rather hear why. You know, what problem is it that you have where you will need to create a Shiny app for? It? Yeah. Yeah, I think people, it, it's this kind of approach. If you have a hammer, your world looks yeah, like nails. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that's fine in, in one regard, but that I think it's really, really important to first start from the problem side mm -hmm. and then go to the kind of tools. Um, I've, it's, you know, not everything needs a Bayesian analysis. Not everything needs some kind of super sophisticated analysis. If a t-test does a really good job, well, then it's maybe just a t-test. It's a problem that is solved, so don't, don't you know, engineer something into it. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, mm, I, I have things to say about that as well, about p-values, but well, that's a different topic altogether. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, but you're right. You know, if if there's a simple decision to be made, maybe all you need is a simple method. Yeah, 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 yeah. In terms of this, this driving these innovations forward, that for me has also a lot kind of to do with change management. Mm. Yeah, because you need to, you know, get it more broader, um, broader kind of accepted and You know, culturally, kind of, we are as, as people, the most of us are rather resistant to change. Yeah. Mm. So, kind of, the, the vast majority of people are rather resistant to change. What's your kind of experience in kind of, you know, rolling out innovations to kind of, you know, to a bigger group. It's, it's maybe not just kind of um, the physicians that you uh, work with that you need to um, convince, but, but a bigger group of uh, people that you want to convince on an innovation. Yeah, I've had experience of that. I mean, I, I've, in the last two years, uh, I've been working on a big software project at, at Pfizer um, for the clinical pharmacology department. And it was essentially our workbench where we do all the work that goes into submissioning uh, regulatory submission for and reporting for clinical pharmacology it was replacing a system that had been there for about 15 years yeah we're taking some taking away a system that colleagues have been familiar with for a long long time and yes there were pros and cons of that system but people had been using it and they knew how it worked and it and it had that ingrained yes i'm familiar with this and replacing it with something new and actually you make a fantastic point that we had to actually engage with professionals to talk about change management mm. you know and prepare the ground so it's it's plowing the field getting people ready for that change something's coming don't be afraid of it you know, let them know in advance that this new thing is coming And demonstrate that new thing. You know, let me show you how it works. Let me reassure you that it's not going to be completely unfamiliar when we make that change. Yeah. And then also show that it's good enough. You know, so it will continue to do the things you need it to do for your reports because, you know, you're on a time constraint. You can't afford this to be different. Yeah. 
but then acknowledge that for some people there will be the there's the curve of adoption where you have the early adopters that go oh wow this is great this is new i'm excited about this let's get in and use it and see what it can do and then there's a kind of later lag phase where the majority of people come on and some of those people will like it and some of the people will find issues with it and problems with it but could probably live with what they're seeing and then there's the tail end of that change curve where the people who didn't want to change in the first place are now forced into that new thing yeah yeah and so you need to be as as the person rolling out the change you need to be ready for the excitement initially which is great. And that's the thing that motivates us when we're rolling out something new. You've got people out there, wow, that looks fantastic. I'm really excited about this. But then you've got to acknowledge that there will be people who are sitting there going, I'm really uncomfortable with this. I'm going to hold off using it until the last second when I'm forced to do it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There's this awesome book about change management called Our Iceberg is Melting uh, by, by Steve Kotler. Do you know that? I don't, but uh, the, just the title makes me know <laughs> that it's going to be a good book. It's it's an awesome story about change management. The, the story is that the um, there's pigeons that sit on an iceberg, and then there's um, Fred, the uh, curious person that find or the curious pigeons that finds out that the iceberg is melting. Then, you know, the, he speaks about that and then there's this big committee this, uh, that runs the uh, colony and how he gets them to convince to act something like this. And then there's, of course, the pigeons that is it's called no-no, that uh, <laughs> is completely against everything. Yeah. So um, it's a really, really nice read. Uh, it's about probably you can read it in, in 90 minutes or something like this with, with lots of illustrations, but it talks about all these different aspects of change management. And it exactly talks to the point that you just made. Yeah. In terms of you need to have some early adopters that um, take it and uh, create some good uh, examples, some, some use cases. It's, it's really Awesome if you can identify them early in the project because then you can even incorporate them in the delivery of, of, or the, um, the creation of the innovative project because then you already have some stakeholders in the kind of groups that you want to convince that have expertise in this area. But more often, uh, more important also, they have some, you know, recognition, trust. They, they, you know, they, they are people that others refer to and that are kind of not outsiders. So having these kind of insiders that speak positively about your change uh, management is really, really important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, that's exactly how we did it with this big software um, tool because we had our early adopters in, as you see, very early actually working with the system. Mm. Uh, because we're talking about, I don't know, uh, maybe up to 200 different colleagues actually using the system at the end of the day. You know, you can't, as an individual, hope to convince 200 people. Yeah. But if you've found, say, 20 across the different places in, in your organization who can be local advocates for what's happening 
and and go to speak to their friends that they drink coffee with or have lunch with and go, you know, it's not that bad. I've played with it for six months and, uh, you know, there's some good things about it. You know, those are the people who are really going to help the change. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really kind of continued presentations about it, continued education about it, make it really, really easy for people, but also kind of strategically foresee what are all the questions that we, people will have and sure. that you have set uh, all your yeah, question and answer documents in, in place for that. But even on a smaller scale, you know, I've done some stuff where, you know, I've I've had an idea, I roll it out, And I think it's a great idea, right? And the fact that it exists should make other people excited about it, mm. you know? <laughs> and that's not how you do things, you know, unless you have something like an iPhone that a, a million people are just going to go, that's fantastic. You know, if you have a new R package and you, and you release it and you push it to Cran, most of the world is just going to go, hmm, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, you have to have friends colleagues you know people from outside your organization who can be equally excited about this yeah 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 you know it, and it's it's i talk about if you build it they will come you know the field of dreams analogy where if you build a baseball uh, field in your backyard then something magical will happen um that almost never happens in practice yeah 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 you need to tell people you need to get the word out somehow so Yeah, I think that is a general kind of theme that I see quite a lot. That pe that it's we are you know as statisticians overall kind of more introverted, mm -hmm. and um, I think in the overall industry where there's also a lot of um, extroverted people, maybe more coming from marketing and sales and and other areas we kind of get lost in the noise. Yeah. So I think we need to become much more, much better in terms of how we communicate, how we market ourselves and kind of that shouldn't be something that is bad. I think the, the yeah. mindset to, for that is, should be, we are actually doing a disservice to the organization or to, to the uh, scientific society if we don't promote it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and you know, this is the point I was trying to make about marketing as well. You know, I, I recognize that many statisticians feel uncomfortable about marketing generally. You know, they say, "Well, you know, here are the facts," and you know, I don't need you to spin those facts. I don't need you to promote bigger than I think it is because I know the uncertainty in those numbers. You know, and so I have uncertainty in, about them. So you shouldn't be certain. You know, and and also that. There's a feeling that marketing generally involves being extrovert, right? Yeah. But I think the point I was trying to make, I recognize that the introverted more, it's not even the more introverted, but it's the having uncertainty about stuff is natural to a statistician. Yeah. So marketing seems to eliminate that uncertainty. So as a statistician, I'm trying to say that marketing your work, marketing your idea, marketing even your graph or your result, because that's what you have to do to convince people and to get them to use that to make a decision. That marketing is not necessarily about being 
extrovert and handing out business cards and being overly enthusiastic about something that you have a lot of uncertainty about. It's about building those relationships and trust. You know, I have a track record of helping you make good decisions. Yeah. So I'm not asking you to, you know, print out my results on a flag and put it on a flagpole. You know, I'm just talking about, you know, take on what I'm saying and, you know, use it because you know me and because you trust what I've done in the past. Yeah. You know, that doesn't involve being overtly extroverted or anything like that. That's just having that ongoing relationship with your team, with the people you work with, with the, the customers, whoever it is. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, it's really about three different things. It's about um, showing that, that you care for them in terms of um, that you uh, take where they are coming from. And that, that people see that you, uh, have a good competence, which I think usually we as statisticians have. And also what usually comes a lot really easily for us statisticians is the, the character part. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think generally we are seen as, uh, as a function that has a high integrity and we want to do things right. I think the, let's say downside to that is we want to be overly precise and overly accurate and have all the details in there. And then with this kind of, to make it 100% correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you want to, you know, communicate something, it's, I think it's not so much about having all the details in there, but first it's about, getting the main message across. And and so that's also what is, you know, what is in marketing. It's not about kind of, you know, getting all the bells and whistles about there and all the kind of limitations and strengths and whatsoever. That is important. But, Mm -hmm. you know, first get the main point across and then you can speak about all the other things. Right. And I don't think I've ever met a statistician who wanted the people they're working with to make bad decisions. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, they're actively trying to subvert and make the organization do something wrong. You know, I, I, I honestly believe that most statisticians want the right decision to be made. Um, And so to that point, you know, it's, it's the, um, if you start from that position where you're saying, I want you to make a good decision. Yeah. Right. Then instead of saying, you know, I, I, I don't know. I fully agree with, with wanting everything to be super precise. I would say more statisticians say, here's what I'm seeing. I have uncertainty. You also should have uncertainty and you should acknowledge that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of times in making the decision, people ignore the uncertainty. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, p values help with that because it's a hard and fast black or white result. Um, but let's not go there. <laughs> but uh, the other thing that's really vital for statisticians to remember is that that decision will be made whether people buy your result or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you have to say a decision has to be made. Let me try and help you make a good decision. And, you know, hopefully incorporating some of the uncertainty in, in what I'm seeing. Yeah. One other aspect in terms of 
innovation and also this change management and um, all these kind of other things that, that we talked about is um, learning about that. How did you learn about that? What kind of support did you have to, to you know, get better in, in this innovative ways and, and selling innovations and things like that? I think it's it's practice. Mm. You know, it's, it's playing with stuff. And I, I make the point that playing with a purpose becomes practice. And so, you know, I play at applying methods, you know, or, or I play at trying to wire together software A and software B. Um, and oftentimes that's outside of my house burning down, you know, project crisis. You know, yeah. when you have a little bit of spare time, play with things, see if, you know, see if you've never used Shiny before, you know, try to make an app, see what happens, see see what you can and can't do with it. Um, and really, in terms of learning how to innovate, it's just doing that. It's just playing with things to the point where um, you pick up skills along the way. So I now know how to wire together software A, software B. I know how to create a shiny app. So I'm now ready that if it turns out that the project team needs me to do something that wires together software A, software B and make a shiny app, I can do that. Mm. Um, in terms of rolling out and, and selling that, you know, I think being honest with yourself when it comes to failure is the important part, you know, being ready for things to fail and then knowing why it failed and then how to turn that around and go, okay, you know, rather than push something that I don't think is 100% ready or 100% right, I'll back off. You know, this is not the time to roll out that new thing. Okay. Either because the organization's ready or it's not good enough or, you know, I don't have, to, I haven't completed it enough. And really, I think, it's not, I, I didn't go to a class on innovation. You know, I didn't get taught in my MSc about innovation. And so really it just comes down to, I've done enough of it that I can sense when, you know, this is going to work. This is a good idea. The organization's ready. So let's, let's do something with it. What other support did you have to, you know, get more into this innovation? Well, I learned for some, from some really excellent people. So, uh, you know, I had, I did a lot of the, the kind of early innovation stuff with Andy Grieve when he worked at Pfizer. And, you know, he was a great advocate and someone who would stand behind you and look over your shoulder and, and go, ah, you know, this is a, this is nice, but try tweaking this. Um, but also he had the ideas, you know, and so the, he would come up with, I wonder if we can do this. And then I would work with him to, you know, see if that could be done. Um, so having that mentor to come up with the ideas and then working with that person to implement it, you know, is, is great training because you're in safe hands because that's someone who's done this enough themselves that, you know, they can just bounce off you and go, uh, you know, I, I think this is ready or I don't think it's ready or this is fantastic or not quite there yet. You know, so so having those mentors is is really important. The other thing is having good bosses, having good managers. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, having a manager that will allow you the time and cut you slack to play. You know, yes, Mike, I know you're not very busy, but what? Why on earth are you trying to wire together software A and software B? 
you know, if you have a manager that goes, I see you're playing, it's playing in the right kind of um, setting. You know, you're trying to wire together software A and software B. I don't know why, but I'll trust that, you know, you know what you're aiming for here. But also having the managers that go, playing is good. I'll give you the time. But then at the end of it, I want to see what you've done. Yeah. And I want you to report back and tell me what you've learned. Yeah. So do, so, in telling it and, and things like that. Yeah. 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 Those, those two things, good mentors and good managers, you, you can go on a long way with those. One other thing that I found really helpful for me in the past is also having good kind of colleagues and, and a network. Yeah. So, uh, for example, I'm, I'm not really good, a good programmer. And mm -hmm. lots of the ideas that I have involve programming. So having some, some people that have these kind of complementary skills and, and chatting with them about it and, and trying things out is also, I think, really, really helpful. So. Yeah, uh, you you seldom can do it on your own. Mm. You're going to need to find other people who can help. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be really surprised if anyone can go start of an idea to finish. You know, you'd have to be exceptional in so many areas. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, there was a question during the talk yesterday about people who work, you know, as self-employed or contractors or, or consultants. You know, when you're on your own, how do you do this? And that's that that's tough, you know, because as you're playing, as you're trying out stuff, you know, clients are not going to pay you just to sit and play with things unless that's expl explicitly part of a contract. Yeah. And so, you know, my, my response to that was about uh, perhaps this is a business development thing. You know, you learning this new skill or you trying out this new idea you know, perhaps that's something that you could then, you know, offer to a client to say, hey, I've developed this new method for going from A to B quickly and efficiently and with less resource. You know, that is now a differentiating factor for my, you know, for my uh, contract. Um, but the other thing is finding external people. So if you don't have internal programmers and, and colleagues and friends who can come alongside and go, oh, I see you're trying to do this. Let me help then finding external people who can do that is equally important. And that's why we go to conferences, right? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, the reasons we go to conferences for sure. Yeah, that's, uh, these conferences help you to um, have this network of other people that are like-minded and, and that want to go into the same direction. I, I, for ex uh, I remember one thing that I was really passionate about and um, – I didn't have someone within my company that, that uh, I could drive that forward with, but uh, there was um, uh, a person that was leading a CRO that was mm -hmm. uh, really interested in this topic. And yeah, we, yeah, we, we basically um, met over some drinks in the evening to, to just chat about it. Yeah. Because it was just a, a fun to, to talk about it and to bounce off some ideas about it. And, that actually developed in, in some really, really nice solutions. And I could foresee that, you know, if you have other, if there's other contractors, if there's other freelancers, if, if you have, you know, smaller CROs that you work with and where you know the, uh, the right people, I think these kind of environments can help 
drive forward innovations in, in that area. Or yes. maybe some, someone in academia that, you know, is yes. interested yeah. in that. Yeah. Indeed. You know, building your network will, will get you a long way as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. We talked a little bit about the PSI conference already, and uh, you gave a presentation about uh, this topic. We touched, touched on p-values quite a lot. And, well, there is also an interesting session uh, this year on, on, on that topic. Those, uh, your presentation as well uh, as one about the p-values and uh, lots of other things, including also uh, Deborah Ashby's presentation. I had Deborah earlier here on the podcast to, to speak about Florence Nightingale and a couple mm -hmm. of topics around that. All of these will also sit on the video-on-demand platform of PSI, so you can uh, find further resources all there and uh, try to make sure that we have links to these different things in, in the podcast notes. Mike, any any final thoughts about uh, innovation? Because we talked a lot about what innovation is. We talked about why it's important, how you can get to it, how you can roll it out, what you know fosters innovation, what kind of may derail innovation, um, how to think about it. So. Any final thoughts about this topic? Keep practicing. Practice innovation. Um, because the more you practice innovation, you'll get better at it. Awesome. Thanks so much for this really, really nice chat. And um, yeah, hopefully see you soon at one of the PSI events after this Corona time. Now we just see ourselves kind of virtually, but um, would be nice to, yeah get then in contact as well and maybe then we come across some listeners of this podcast episode and can further chat about this topic yeah thanks alexander this show was created in association with psi thanks to rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed the show so much as i did when i recorded it Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com where you can sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss anything that is offered for free, additional content and any announcement in terms of upcoming episodes and these type of things. So head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and sign up for the newsletter. As always, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.